Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. And we are almost done. I keep saying that all the time. We are almost done this series. No, but seriously, we are almost done. Michael did tell me there's only one more episode in this series after this one. But then I heard him mumbling, maybe I should do the last one into two episodes. So as always, don't take my word for it. Take Michael's word for it. This is why I'm the graphic designer. He's the teacher. So as always, if you'd like to help support this broadcast, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence number four, faith.org slash give. Every donation you give actually goes straight back into the ministry, whether it's helping us pay our bills or keeping us going, keeping our staff here, upgrading our materials. So really thankful for that. So without further ado, here's Michael Lane in The Road to Emmaus, Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament, episode 23. Hello and welcome to Evidence for Faith, your host, Michael Lane. So glad you're joining me today for another podcast on the road to Emmaus, the Old Testament messianic prophecies concerning the suffering Messiah, who is Jesus. These were prophecies given in the Old Testament that proclaim what the Messiah would be doing, what does, is his role, how would you recognize him? And we've been starting, uh, going through these, which we started in Genesis, and today we're up to the book of uh, Hosea. And again, the reason we call this the road to Emmaus, because uh, it talks about in the Gospels that after Jesus froze from the dead, he was walking to, um, to Emmaus, and he came across two fellows who were walking, two of his disciples. They didn't recognize him, and Jesus goes up and starts talking to these two, but Jesus has just risen from the dead, and they don't recognize him. They never expected to see him again, and they didn't recognize him, and um, they were telling him about all the terrible things about what had happened, and he, Jesus was acting like he didn't know what was going on, and then it says that Jesus, uh, beginning with the with Scripture, beginning back with the old covenant Scriptures, began to explain them to him, to them about how the Messiah would come and that he had to suffer and die. And so we're looking at what possible prophecies. Could Jesus have been telling his two friends on the road to Emmaus, what are some of these prophecies that are being mentioned um, there in that conversation? I wish we were like a, a fly on the shoulder of one of these guys listening as Jesus actually took these, these prophecies. And there's been, well, today we're starting number 74. So we've come across 74, uh, 73 of these we've covered at this point. And now we're on number 74. <clears throat> And as I said, we're in the book of Hosea. So if you're taking notes or if you have your Bible, open up to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. We're going to be getting into that right right away here. And as we've been doing it, I said that this is the 74th prophecy. It's Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And I'm calling this prophecy called from Egypt, called from Egypt. Now, Almost all of us are familiar with the wonderful Christmas story. Christmas is one of my favorite times of year. I just absolutely love it. Memories and stuff uh, from childhood, flood back, um, relatives, friends, etc. There's so many wonderful memories about Christmas. And though I hate winter and I hate snow and I hate ice, I do like to have a white Christmas. Um, outside of Christmas, I could care less about snow. But anyway, um, the Christmas story 
reveals that Mary and Joseph were told in a dream in the book of Matthew to head to Egypt. Why? Because Herod the Great had been visited by the Magi uh, coming from the east looking for the Messiah who was born, who is going to remove sin and iniquity and restore righteousness upon fallen mankind. And as we saw in the last prophecy, this is what they this is what was prophesied, and the, the Magi knew these things, and that's why they come and they realize it's the Son of God and that um, only God could do all this, and they, they bow down to him. Herod finds out about this because they ask Herod, where is he who is born King of the Jews? Because that was the title Herod self-proclaimed upon himself. So Herod is very upset with this, of course. And um, when he then finds out that uh, the Magi uh, go to Bethlehem, and then they don't come back, that they take a different route. Herod sets out, of course, to kill uh, the um, this baby, uh, the baby infant, the, the the child here, and so uh, trying to kill Jesus because you know he doesn't want to give up the kingship and and stuff like this. So Herod's trying to find him to kill him, and God forts. Foresu, uh, foreknew all of this stuff. He, he saw all this beforehand. All of this is planned. That is what's so cool about our sovereign God, because nothing catches him off guard. Now, why he allows evil and suffering and stuff to, to be on the planet and affecting us all? Well, the Bible tells us it wasn't his plan. That was not his plan. It was something, the consequence, which he told us, the consequence of not obeying him is death, suffering, um, all this stuff. And we chose to bring this on. This was not God's plan, though God has a way to fix it. And it, that's what these prophecies are, how God is going to go about fixing how the entire cosmos was affected by sin and death. And that's what this is all about. And it's it's showing God's structured plan to, to let people see um, that he does indeed have a plan that the Messiah would come and fix our sinful condition and restore us to the Father so that we can be members now of God's family. So that is the, the reason. And God uses... Um, even though he he is all powerful, all knowing, he uses our screw ups, our messing up all the works, and he can use that to bring himself glory and bring more people into his family. So um, it's not that God's asleep at the switch. No, he has everything planned. And and even in this case, he had all this planned ahead of time because this is proof of it. When Mary and Joseph had the baby Jesus, um, they find out Herod's trying to kill him, and then they go to Egypt. And that's what this is all about. Well, God foreknew all this. He, he saw this coming. It was all a plan. And in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, it reads, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this passage has two meanings. First of all, it's referring to Israel's a child, I love him, and out of Egypt he came. That is talking about the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people, who were enslaved by the Egyptians, and then God calls them out using um, Moses as the deliverer. He delivers them out of the slavery and takes them um, into the wilderness to meet with God, where God marries the Hebrew nation and gives 
gives them the law, the Torah, and and shows them through the Torah, if you are to be a holy people, you are to be my people, you shall be holy. And so now um, he gives them the law and the old covenant law shows us how holy God is, and and that really no person can live that holy of a life. It's impossible. Yet Jesus did it because Jesus is God. He was the one person who did it. So this is actually this prophecy here, when Israel was a child, I loved them, and out of Egypt I called them. That is talking about the Exodus. No, No question about that. But there is a double meaning here, and that's also where it says, out of Egypt I called my son. This is actually referring to the Christmas story as recorded in Matthew. Matthew talks about Jesus with Mary and Joseph fleeing from Herod to go down to Egypt. And they lived for a while in safety in Egypt, but then he returns to the promised land after Herod had died. Now, the thing is, how do I know that this is messianic? Well, it's very simple because it's the, it's the same story. It's in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Let me just read this. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Isn't it fascinating that Matthew quotes this verse, Hosea 11.1, 1, he actually quotes the verse telling us without any doubt whatsoever that this deals with the Messiah, that it's a messianic prophecy. Now, I want to share with you something that's a little different concerning this this prophecy here, that the Messiah, you will recognize the Messiah, he's, God is telling the Jews, because he will, um, he will be, as a child, he will live in Egypt, and then he will come out of Egypt. And of course, that's what happened. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and from Bethlehem, he goes to Egypt. They travel very quickly. As soon as Joseph gets it, says they left by night. So it's uh, apparently it's the same night Joseph gets the dream. They quickly pack up and flee. And they go to Egypt, and they stay in Egypt for a period of time until Herod's death, and then they come back. And they go back. Originally, they're heading back to Bethlehem um, because that's where their ancestors and stuff and probably a lot of relatives lived. But instead, they find out that Herod's son is now ruling, and so they go up north back to Nazareth where Mary and Joseph actually started off because they have friends and acquaintances, no doubt, still up there, and they go up to this little hick town called Nazareth. There was also work to be had up there for a carpenter uh, because just uh, uh, not even a half day's walk from Nazareth is the city of Sepphoris, a Roman capital city that was under construction at the time. And we go there. It's a very popular place for tourists to go when they travel to Israel. Though Sepphoris is not mentioned in scripture, it's so fascinating because, like I say, it's next door to Nazareth. Um, There's a valley in between. Nazareth sits up on top of like a very high hill or mountain uh, with a cliff there. But uh, Sepphoris was the Roman governor's um, the uh, the palace there, it was a Roman city. And so they would have to build, and that's what carpenters do. So there was work to be had by going up there, and that's 
um, one of the reasons they ended up back in Nazareth. Also, it fit prophecy, as we've covered before, because out of um, from Galilee is where there will be a light shining, and the Messiah comes and teaches, and most of this ministry is done in Galilee. But I want to—I just want to take a moment here and show you something, um, which is a little difficult to do on a podcast. But <laughs> let me read it to you. I'll tell you about it. I guess is how I should phrase this. Now, some people say that there's, you know, that there's no evidence that. Um, Jesus was ever the Son of God or did miracles or anything like that. Um, there's a fellow by the name of Bart Ehrman who's a best-selling author who had, um, I was just watching his program um, on television just yesterday and um, in his broadcast he was saying that there was no mention of Jesus ever being a miracle worker or ever being proclaimed like as anything special. He was just an ordinary little rabbi, nothing special about him until you get to like the the fourth century. And that is so wrong. That is so incorrect. Because let me show you how incorrect Bart Ehrman is on this. There is a Roman by the name of Celsus who lived during the second century. He's actually, actually he's Greek, um, but he lived during the Roman period of time, of course. But he was a Greek philosopher, lived during the second century. So right about the time that the apostle John dies, Celsus very soon after this comes on the scene. Now, what he what he is, he's not a follower. He's not a Christian, not a believer. No. As a matter of fact, he wrote one of the very, very first comprehensive attacks on Christianity, Celsus. It's spelled C-E-L-S-U-S. And um, he was attacking Christianity, and he's a philosopher and a writer. He wrote a book, we know of this from Roman, other Roman and, and other historians and stuff, they mentioned Celsus's writing. Now, his book has not survived antiquity in its entirety, but it's been quoted it was quoted so often in the second century. He was a very popular person because his work was quoted so often. We know the name of this book even. It was called The True Word. Celsus wrote a book called The True Word, but like I say, it hasn't survived intact. Sections of it do exist, and he was constantly quoted um, by early the early church fathers um, as they were writing in defense of Jesus and about Christianity and um, about a relationship with Jesus. They wrote about the life of Christ, these early church fathers. One of them by, uh, by name was Origen. Origen, very, very famous, uh, very well written. We have many of his works to this day. And he is one that took a copy of the true word, Celsus's work, where in, in this book called The True Word, Celsus is trying to attack Christianity, trying to put it down. Um, and Origen quotes sections out of Celsus's book, The True Word. He quotes parts out of it and then explains how Celsus has the facts wrong. And um, he tells us, for instance, Celsus wrote that Jesus was the illegitimate son of a Roman. Um, and so right there, let's just stop right there. Celsus says that Jesus was the illegitimate son of a Roman from up in Nazareth. Nazareth, there was a Roman military uh, legion that was, uh, that was housed and kept over in the Nazareth area. 
And so according to him, Mary would have um, had a, some illicit affair with the, uh, some Roman, and the Roman got her pregnant, and that's how this goes. This is what Celsus is writing. Um, later, though, that Roman disappears, and he has uh, a Jew marries uh, Mary and accepts and adopts this child, this illegitimate son, as his own. And the thing is, he doesn't give us the name, but he gives us the occupation of this person who marries uh, Mary, and he was a carpenter. So Celsus tells us that Jesus has a stepfather who wasn't his natural father. It was a stepfather who was a carpenter up in this area of, of um, Nazareth in Galilee. Now, he's not done there. Celsus also—do you see the similarities, first of all? Do you see the similarities with this? Jesus is not the biological son of Joseph. That is true because it's not a Roman was his father. It was the Holy Spirit. Um, Mary was the mother, of course, so Celsus has got some of his facts correct, but some of it is wrong. He does have a stepfather. Jesus does have a stepfather, Joseph, who was a carpenter. So we got that part right also. But he continues. He wrote that Jesus, that his family moved, uh, and Jesus moved with his family to Egypt. So he has this in his book. Celsus writes that the family moved to Egypt. Now, I don't know if I can't recall or if I can't remember ever seeing anything about the reason for them moving to Egypt outside of probably fear or work, but they go and they live in Egypt. Now, Celsus writes that Jesus lived in Egypt for a while, and while he was there, he studied and grew up, and he, he was studying, as a child now, he was studying magic, the Egyptian magic. And then we have uh, Celsus writes that, that Jesus returns back home to Palestine, and when he comes home, he performs miracles, amazing miracles, supernatural power over nature, over disease, over all sorts of, of um, natural sequences. He is doing miracles, not magic tricks. He actually is performing miraculous signs, um, raising people from the dead and doing all sorts of things. Just what, I mean, you can see Celsus has got some of this correct. Jesus did live in Egypt for a while, but then he comes back. Jesus was a miracle worker, but he didn't learn the Egyptians. The Egyptians weren't doing this stuff, but Jesus became some special magician and through uh, Celsus telling us that he, he learned from the secrets of the pharaohs or whatever, and then came back and started doing all these miracles and stuff. Um, and Jesus did do supernatural things, but it was by the power of God, not magic. But what else does Celsus say? Celsus also tells us, and this is why Bart Ehrman is wrong, because Bart Ehrman says that uh, Jesus was never proclaimed to be God until after the, uh, into the fourth century. Well, Celsus writes, now remember, Celsus is living just after the time of the Apostle John. And he writes in this book, apparently, because it's being quoted so often by different people, he says uh, and wrote that Jesus declared himself to be God. Did you catch that? That in the second century, this Greek philosopher has understood and has written in his book that Jesus has been proclaiming himself in his life a century before that Jesus was declaring himself to be God. 
Now, this is not coming from the Bible. This is coming from a Greek philosopher, a very popular bestseller, uh, best-selling author um, during the second century, and he's describing things about Jesus. He's attacking Christianity, but he actually tells us that Jesus claimed to be God. Bart Ehrman, I was listening to it just yesterday, stating Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, yes, he did, right here. And and Celsus, this this uh, Greek historian or philosopher, writes about this. So even though Celsus was was writing against Christianity, he ended up confirming many doctrines about Jesus. That he did have a carpenter as a stepfather. He got that totally right. They lived in Nazareth. He gets that totally right. They go to Egypt. He got that totally right. He comes back and he performs miracles. He got that totally right. And Celsus also says that he claimed to be God. He gets that totally right. But Celsus was attacking, trying to twist the story um, and many doctrines about Jesus. But in doing so, do you understand in knocking Christianity, he kept confirming many things? So Origen had a field day with this guy, with his work, and Origen would take the statements and and then correct them and show that Celsus has some of his facts correct, but not all of them. And so Origen clears up the problems that was going on. He dissects and refutes Celsus's book. Now, wasn't that cool that those kind of things are, are actually out there? And Celsus is probably someone you've never heard of. He's not a real, real popular um, writer for um, a lot of our philosophy classes today, but his work can be found. You can research, as I have done, you can research the work of Celsus. And if you read Origen's writings and stuff, um, you can come across a lot of things that Celsus wrote because he's quoted so often. He was such a popular person. Well, that takes us through that one. That was number 74. And now we're going to go to pay, uh, or number 75. Yeah, I just turned a page. If you probably heard it. We're going to 75. We're going into another prophecy. And this is another book. Uh, this is the book of Micah. Micah. And prophecy number 75 is Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. And very familiar passage. It's We often read this at Christmas time. Um, see, we're all into the, the birth of Christ on these last ones here. Um, but Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, and I'm entitling this one, O Bethlehem, the birthplace of the Messiah. O Bethlehem, the birthplace of the Messiah. Now, we just got done talking about this um, in the last lesson. We were talking about Daniel and how the Magi, the wise men, had apparently almost all the Old Testament books because they knew so many things about the coming Messiah. They understood what we have been learning through this series on the road to Emmaus. They had these books, and they had picked out these parts. It's so amazing that the Magi from the East, these Chaldeans, uh, or wherever they came from, into the, uh, from the East, come over, and they know more about who Jesus, who this Messiah is going to be, and what he is going to do. I mean, they even tell, uh, or read the passage and stuff from, from Daniel's work and uh, that Jesus would remove sin and iniquity and that he, he would give righteousness and, and all of this. And they, they caught all of these prophecies. They knew it, that there would be a star that would signal his birth. They, they had all this stuff. They, the Chaldeans, had it. Yet the Jews who had the scriptures, had all of the scriptures, didn't catch it. And that's one thing that just 
bothers me to this day. I still can't understand. Even when the wise men came to Bethel or came to to uh, Herod in Jerusalem. Wanting to know, because they obviously didn't have this prophecy. They didn't have the book of Micah, or they would have had the answer to that too. But they had to come to Jerusalem and ask Herod, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Where's the Messiah, in other words, going to be born? And Herod didn't know, but Herod went to the scribes, and the scribes said, oh, yeah, it's in the book of Micah. Micah scroll. So they pull out Micah scroll, scroll, they pull it out, and they start reading uh, to the Magi, no doubt, this exact passage. Because they they quoted this passage here, and... um, so now the Magi know where to go, but it just boggles the mind. Even when this happened, they have told Herod and the people in Jerusalem all these signs that the Messiah is being born, and they didn't know where, and then they're told by scribes in Jerusalem to go to Bethlehem. That's where it's going to be, and Herod even bids them well. He says, go to Bethlehem, find the child. My question is this, that puzzles me. Why didn't everybody else go? At least, why didn't the scribes go? I think there is an answer to it. I think everybody feared Herod the Great, because Herod wanted to kill the kid. So they wanted, he wanted to kill the baby Jesus. He didn't want no Messiah to be born. And I have a feeling that Herod had a lot to do with this, the, the fear, because Herod was such a ruthless person. As uh, one Roman wrote, it is... Um, safer to be um, a pig in in Herod's house than his son, because Herod killed his own sons, killed his own wives. He he killed hundreds and hundreds of people. He was a murderer. Um, very terrible person. So, yeah, it just boggles my mind. Why didn't people go see the birth? Only the wise men went. And of course, Jesus at this point, as we've already covered, Jesus is already, um, he's, he's already born because the, the wording that's used in the book of Matthew, that they say uh, when they come and they meet the baby Jesus, it's not the word baby, it's the, um, the Greek word for toddler, that he is a small child at this point, um, a toddler, not an infant. So no, I don't believe that they... Uh, wise men or uh, magi were there at the night of the birth because when they came, it wasn't an infant. It's it's specifically not the Greek word for infant. It's the word for toddler. And there's a big difference. Being a father myself and having three girls, um, my wife and I, um, there is a difference between a newborn infant and a toddler. Major difference. Um, and so I, I've just always been puzzled. Why didn't others go to see, see the Messiah? Well, it still puzzles me today. With all the evidence that's out there, why don't people come to find Jesus as their Lord and Savior? I still don't get it. But that's why this ministry exists, is to try and get people to understand that. But let's get back. Number 75, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 through 5, O Bethlehem, birthplace of the Messiah. Now, as I said, this is one of the most familiar passages in a Christmas story. It's read every year. And Bethlehem is where the star, whatever that was, as we talked about in the last lesson, I don't think it was a—I do not believe it was a natural occurring star um, because it seems to move 
and um, goes from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, its movement, that's only six miles distance. Um, normally, you don't see stars up in the skies moving that fast, that quickly, and that precisely from one spot over Jerusalem to be over Bethlehem, but that's what they experienced. That's why I think it was probably some supernatural event, maybe an angel or something. I don't know. It doesn't say an, an angel. It just says a star. It's a puzzlement, but something that was moving. Um, some say it was Shekinah glory that was uh, that was moving. I don't know, but there was something that was moving there. And the, uh, the shepherds, of course, they come to Bethlehem. You know, they're out in the fields watching their sheep when the Messiah is born. And the wise men come. And, um, and how did the wise men know where to go? This is what the wise men, the magi in Jerusalem hear from the scribe. So Micah 5, 2 through 5 reads, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is, uh, is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. How many fantastic titles do we see of the Messiah here and of God? Well, we see, you know, that um, who's going to be a ruler um, of Israel. So it's a king, obviously, is being born. It says the origin is from old, from ancient days, as we saw in an earlier prophecy in Daniel in the last lesson. Ancient of days is a title of God the Father, and he's coming from God the Father. That seems to fit also. He's going to be coming at a time where he's she's going to be giving birth. It's actually an, a physical birth. That goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first major messianic prophecy. And um, um, as it moves on, it, it says that he shall become a shepherd, um, the shepherd, the flock. Um, and how we've, we've covered, too, that that's a messianic title um, and majesty in the name of the Lord of um, his God, that he is God, of course, coming from uh, God the Father. And he's going to be giving peace. And as we talked about, he gives peace with God. And so we see all these wonderful messianic titles in this passage that Micah wrote. Now, um, so we can see that Bethlehem is the birthplace. And it's interesting because the name Bethlehem, Beit Lehem, is the uh, Hebrew wording of this. And Beit means the house of, um, and Lehem it means bread, so the house of bread. Now, why was Bethlehem called the house of bread is actually pretty simple. You go back to the temple sacrifices and stuff in the book of Leviticus, when um, even describing the tabernacle and then becoming the temple, the sacrifices required grain offerings. Grain, well, Jerusalem, where the Solomon built the temple, um, was at that time during the Old Testament, was basically in a forested area, but they needed grain. And as we read in the book of of Ruth, Boaz had many grain fields, and he's in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was known for a lot of grain growing around here. As a matter of fact, if you go to Bethlehem today, 
you can, in some tours, they'll take you at Bethlehem, tour guides will take you out and they call it the Field of Boaz. And it's it's a grain field even to this day. They still grow grain all around there. Another thing it's known for is sheep. And, of course, David was a shepherd and kept sheep there at Bethlehem. And you still see sheep in the area and stuff like this. But the house of bread um, and the Lamb of God, it's so interesting that both of those play into the name of Bethlehem. Anyway, um, you know, Jesus is called the Beth, the bread of life, and he will be the shepherd of his people, and he will give them peace, which is what the angels said to the shepherds, that um, peace on earth, goodwill to men, goodwill to everybody pleasing God. But there's peace that's given, not the world's peace. We won't see that until the Messiah comes and establishes that forever uh, when Jesus comes again. But that is all from this little prophecy here. So it's an often quoted prophecy in uh, at the Christmas season, but we usually just talk about it being a the, the birthplace. But as you saw, there's so many other messianic titles found in that one passage. Well, it was that not cool. Well, that takes us to the end of our lesson here. And uh, we have one more lesson that we're going to be doing next time. We're going to be going through uh, Zechariah. And after Zechariah, we have a couple in Malachi. And then we are done with the series. And I hope you're enjoying the series. I hope um, you stayed with me through my little rabbit trail through the works of Celsus today and stuff. But it, this is just fascinating material. And uh, I just get so excited about some of these things, as you can tell, because my voice varies quite a bit. I'm definitely not a monotone speaker. No, not at all. And I, I am actually quite an, animated. I'm doing most of these recordings standing up because I can't s- sit sometimes and talk about this because I just, um, I'm moving the chair all over and I keep standing up and sitting down. But I want to thank you for joining me. And uh, again, please check out our website and look through the different lessons that we have. And as we wrap this one up, we'll be starting another series. Um, I just just love having people, the comments that people make about listening to these podcasts and the support that people have for us. Please pray for Evidence for Faith. We need your help. Um, we need also people to join us in this ministry to help spread the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to let people know that the Bible does have science accuracy. The Bible does have history. There's never been an archaeological discovery that's disproved the Bible. There's so many things. The Bible is such a wonderful uh, gift from God, and we want to get that out, and Evidence for Faith works for free. And so we do this. The only way we can do this is relying on people to help us um, pay the costs of running all the electricity and and heating our studio and everything. Um, but just rest assured, my salary is not very high. I am not trying to make a lot of money. I am not doing that. Um, I am just happy to just make enough money to get by on. Um, and the money for the ministry goes into the ministry to help us to expand, to, to get more artifacts or to put more books out and, and things. So if you're interested, please go to our website. There's an area there you can not only pray for us, but also if you want to contribute, you can do that. And we, we will thank you. And we pray for all of our people, too, who, who join us. So until we meet again, take care. May God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. 
A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.